title of the sermon, God Sees the Heart. There's been a theme lately in many of these sermons as we consider Sam, uh, Samuel's ministry, Saul's ministry, and now as we transition into David, and it really is on the heart. It is kind of amazing, is it not, as you think about Jesus Christ in the New Testament, and when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and, and certainly when he asks what is the greatest commandment, they get it right, that it's to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might, and the second like unto it, that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But the problem as we step into the New Testament is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees completely missed the heart thing. They were so busy doing and with the, the morality and the law thing and the moralism that they missed out on the heart. And I don't know about you, but as we've studied through 1 Samuel, I just have to sit and think, wow, how could anybody miss the emphasis in 1 Samuel that God wants our hearts? And we're going to see a similar idea today as the emphasis continues. And I have mentioned before that sometimes when you see a theme like this in a, in a particular book, it can, it can be a little bit of a struggle for your pastor because I want to exposit the text and I want to give you the meaning and we can only co cover so much in one week, but the theme is so similar. And so I find myself hitting the same theme almost from numerous angles. But you know, I think that that's of the Lord because we sit on any given Sunday or Tuesday evening, and you listen to me, and, and I have a lot of words to say, right? I have a lot of words to say, and, and I say a lot of words, and then, um, and as I say that, I'm reminded of my seventh grade English teacher, a lot is what you put a house on. Many words, and I say many words on any given Sunday, and as I do so, some of them sink and some of them don't, and maybe it will take two or three weeks of saying the same thing just from a different angle before we truly begin to understand what the Holy Spirit would have for us. So, the title of the message, God Sees the Heart, and remember, when we speak of the heart, biblically we speak of the very seat of our affections. We could call it our mind, um, but just as, just as the heart is an organ, it's not really um, anything beyond that. Our, our mind is the seat of, of much of who we are, but it really even, we might say, goes a little bit beyond that. It's it's the, the very nature of who we are. It's our passions. It's our understanding. It's our will. It's, it's the very center of our being. It's what makes us us. It's the part of us which directs us. It's the part of us which compels us. It, really, it's the part of us which defines us. And the Bible has so much to say about the heart. And it's because it's the heart that God sees and it's a heart of obedience that God wants. God wants your heart. We spoke a few weeks ago about being an inside-out Christian. The idea that we start with the inside, that we get the heart right, and then we let what we do boil over from what we are. We let our heart carry over into our actions. And we can do it the other way. We'll talk about that just briefly in our application again today. We can start on the outside and we can let the outside look good while the inside's a mess, but that's called hypocrisy. God doesn't want us just doing what's right on the outside. God wants us right with Him on the inside and then what's inside will come out. The kind of living, this inside-out living, 
which truly places God upon the throne in your heart, makes him the ruler of your heart, and compels you to live for him because you love him. And today we're going to, even in, in a greater way, round out our understanding of loving God from the heart. Last time we considered a man who disobeyed, right? His heart was obviously very far from God. This man rejected God and so was rejected by God. God said he had chosen another man, if you recall, a man better than he to lead the nation. Boy, that must have pricked Saul. I chose a man and I found one better than you. Oh, for a man like Saul, a man with his kind of pride, that must have really gotten to him. This idea is going to be brought completely into the spotlight this week. The idea that God sees you differently than man sees you. I see you externally. I see what you do. I see how you dress. I see how you react to people. God sees you differently. God sees your heart. And the key to becoming a man or a woman after God's own heart is learning to see yourself the way God sees you. Learning to love what God loves, learning to hate what God hates, to trust God for all things, and thus to align ourselves with God in all things. And we pick up today in 1 Samuel 16, following Samuel's departure from Saul. Remember, they have gone their separate ways now. Samuel went to Ramah, which is where he lived, and Saul went to Gibeah, where he lived. And at the end of chapter 15, we learn that though Samuel and Saul never again met each other in the flesh, Samuel yet mourned for Saul. He mourned over Saul's rejection. He mourned over Saul's rebellion. He, it was not just an objective thing. Samuel didn't just show up to Saul and say, well, I guess that's it for you. Kick him out the door and say, what's next, God? This was a deeply tragic thing for Samuel. And I trust as we've studied it over the past weeks that you felt that tragedy. I've used that word several times over the past two weeks. Tragic. And Saul's story is tragic. But Samuel is mourning for Saul. And this thought carries us right into chapter 16, verse 1, which says this, And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil, and go, I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 4, that there's a time to mourn and a time to weep. But he contrasts that with a time where there is no need to mourn, a time of rejoicing, a time of laughing, a time of dancing, uh, Solomon would say in Ecclesiastes 3. And here, God tells Samuel that the time to mourn for the man who had ushered himself into a place of spiritual rejection because of his own rebellion is over. The time to mourn is finished. And it's now time to move ahead in God's plan for the theocracy that uh, he desires Israel to be. And so he tells Samuel to fill his horn with oil 
and to go to a man named Jesse the Bethlehemite. And the horn would have just literally been a horn that they would have filled and it would have been filled with an anointing oil specifically designed to anoint someone uh, for a particular purpose. And among the sons of Jesse, God says, would be the next king of Israel. Now, Jesse is a man that has come up once before in Scripture, never before this chronologically necessarily, but he, he is mentioned in one other Scripture prior to 1 Samuel. Back in the time of the judges, before the days of Samuel, Samuel was a judge, but before his days, before the days of Saul, there was a man named Boaz. And we read about Boaz in the book of Ruth. Boaz lived in Bethlehem, and Bethlehem was said to be a tribe of Judah, or in a part of the tribe of Judah. The city, in the city lived Judites. If we trace the story of Ruth, a kinsman of Boaz, his name was Elimelech, left Bethlehem of Judah and went into the, the nation of Moab because there was a famine in Bethlehem. And so he leaves Bethlehem and he goes into Moab and he takes with them his wife and his two sons, their names Malon and Kilion. His wife's name is Naomi. While they're in Moab, he, his sons meet women and they get married. One gets married to a woman named Orpah, the other to a woman named Ruth. Now, while they're in Moab, Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion all die. Naomi is left alone with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And she determines that she is going to go back to Bethlehem. And she tells her daughters-in-law, you need to stay here in Moab. Find yourself new husbands. There's really nothing for you there in, in Bethlehem. So you stay here and you move on with your life. Well, one of them agrees to do this. Her name is Orpah. She agrees to stay and she moves on with her life there in Moab. The other Moabite is named Ruth and she refuses. She clings to her mother-in-law. She says, where you go, I'll go. Where you die, I'll die. Your people become my people. Your God becomes my God. And so Ruth goes with Naomi and they arrive in Bethlehem, Judah. Naomi, of course, is devastated. Her family is there. And they see that she came back alone. Her husband's gone. Her sons are gone. And she says, don't call me Naomi. She, Naomi, she says, call me Mara, a word that means bitter, because God has taken so much away. And so she is now living among family. And Ruth begins going out into the fields every day to glean what she can in order to feed herself and to feed her mother-in-law, Naomi. Now, it was law in Israel that when a servant was gleaning the, the different, the barley and the wheat, that if they dropped any, they were not allowed to pick it back up. And that law was instituted by God so that the poor would have the capacity to live. So the poor could then go into the fields and pick up the gleanings and live off of the gleanings. It wasn't a, a lot, obviously. Um, the master would tell his servants, be careful, I don't want to lose my food. Uh, so I don't want to lose my subsistence and my living. So, so you need to do your best not to drop any. 
But if they did, that's fine, just leave it and, and the poor could take it. So Ruth would do this every day and she would glean from the field. She worked daily in the, name of, uh, in, in the field of a man whose name was Boaz. And Boaz, the scriptures tell us, was a mighty man of wealth. He was a man of, of influence in the city of Bethlehem. He was a man of wealth in the city of Bethlehem. And he began to favor her. He looked upon her. He found out that she was a Moabitess woman who had come back with Naomi from the land of Moab. And he began to favor her. In fact, he began to tell his servants, drop some handfuls of purpose. Drop some, some of your wheat and your barley on purpose so that she can have more gleanings. And she began to come home with some serious gleanings. And Naomi is, is a little confused here. She says, this is not normal. This is, nobody would drop that much in any given day. And that's when she realizes, well, she says, Who, whose field are you going into? Who's this guy that's going to be bankrupt pretty soon because he's dropping all of, his, all of his wealth on the ground? And she says, well, it's Boaz. And immediately a light goes on in Naomi's mind. Wait a minute, Boaz is a near kinsman. Boaz is of the family. And eventually it's discovered that Boaz is the second in line to Elimelech as far as redeeming Ruth. The idea of the kinsman redeemer is that if a man died, someone that was near to him, a brother or a near kinsman, would then marry the woman, the widow, so that, and then raise up seed, raise up children unto that kinsman. And this was a duty in Israel. It was expected. It was in the law of God. And you could refuse it, but if you refused it, um, you would really be branded as a, a man who is forsaking his family. And so the kinsman, uh, the, the kinsman redeemer concept was in effect here. And at the end of it all, Ruth ends up being given to Boaz and Boaz takes Ruth as his wife and has children and raises up children unto her husband, and Boaz becomes that kinsman redeemer. And as we conclude that, the, the book of Ruth, really, we read this. Now, these are the generations of Pharez. Pharez begat Hezron, and Hezron begat Ram, and Ram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Nashon, Nashon excuse me, and Nashon begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz, and Boaz begat Obed, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. We trace the family of Judah through a man named Perez. Salmon was the husband of a woman named Rahab, the Canaanite harlot who hid the spies as they entered into Jericho, if you remember that story. She exercised her faith. She hid the spies. Her family was spared the destruction of Jericho. She gets out of Jericho before it's destroyed uh, as Israel's destroying the land of Canaan. And she ends up marrying Salmon, who is a Judite. Furthermore, we know that uh, Rahab's name is in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, often called the Hall of Faith as a woman of triumphant faith and one uh, who is one of those great cloud of witnesses that has gone before us. So Salmon, uh, he, he is married to Rahab, and Salmon has a son whose name is Boaz. And this is the Boaz that we find in Ruth, which means that Rahab the harlot of Jericho is actually Boaz's mother. All right? So Boaz's mother is Rahab. Maybe that explains why he has a soft spot for um, 
for women who have, been, who have come out of their own land and who are proselytizing into Israel because his mother happened to be a Canaanite harlot before she left Jericho and married her, his father and they had him. And so Boaz's mother is Rahab and Boaz, the scriptures tell us, has a son named Obed through Ruth. And Obed has a son whose name is Jesse. And this is the same Jesse that we find introduced in 1 Samuel 16. Still living in Bethlehem, just like his father and his father's father and his father's father's father, whose name was Boaz. Boaz was his great-grandfather. And Ruth was Jesse's great-grandmother. And his great-great-grandmother was Rahab. So that gives you a little context into this man, Jesse. Jesse now has children of his own. In fact, he has eight children. And God tells Samuel to fill up his horn with oil, the horn being the instrument through which Samuel would anoint the king, and to go find this son of Jesse who will be the next king. And the scriptures tell us this in verse 2. Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. Well, an interesting response. Samuel's response is actually one of dismay. I can't go. If Saul hears that I'm going to anoint a new king, Saul will kill me. Does this tell you a little something about more about Saul's character? Up to this point, we might have been kind of defending the man. Well, pragmatism, yeah. Well, this, but maybe a good-intentioned man. You can't really get around this one, can you? That the prophet of God fears that if he were to go anoint a new king in the name of God, that Saul would literally have him, the prophet of God in Israel, killed. Saul is deeply jealous. Saul is deeply suspicious. Maybe Samuel even would turn around from time to time and see a head poke out of a bush, poke back into a bush. He may have been followed even by Saul at this point, knowing that he'd been rejected as king. Well, it's unlikely in the same context that um, Samuel could make his way to the family of Jesse with a, a horn of anointing oil without Saul being suspicious as to his intentions and uh, if this is any statement of perception of Saul's character, have him killed. Have Samuel killed. And what, what is more interesting here is that God doesn't refute Samuel's claim. God doesn't say, oh, Samuel, you're just being paranoid. Just go, you'll be fine. He doesn't even say, I'll protect you. He says, yeah, you're right, Samuel. We better give you another reason to go there so that Saul doesn't get suspicious. So he tells him, this is what the Lord says, take an heifer, this is the second half of verse 2 and then into verse 3, take an heifer with thee and say, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord and call Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show thee what thou shalt do and thou shalt anoint unto me him whom I name unto thee. So this is the, the divine solution to the Saul's jealous, angry, paranoid problem. Samuel would take a heifer and he would take the heifer with him and he would just go to the whole city of Bethlehem and he would say, I want to do a sacrifice with you all here in Bethlehem. And then it would just so happen that Jesse, being one of the men of Bethlehem, would come and he'd, of course, bring his sons because, I mean, this is Samuel the prophet here. This is not something that you just say, well, I'm a little busy tonight. I don't think I'm going to go. This is Samuel the prophet inviting the city to sacrifice unto the Lord with him. This is going to happen and everyone's going to be there. So it's a good plan. It would be innocent enough in the eyes of Saul and it would accomplish God's purpose. So verse 4 tells us that Samuel did that which the Lord spake. 
and came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Comest thou peaceably? So Samuel arrives in Bethlehem with the heifer, and the leaders are actually quite concerned here. You see, they say there, Comest thou peaceably? That means safely or in, on, on friendly terms. Samuel was a judge in Israel, was he not? Which means that much of his life was spent declaring the will of God and meeting out consequences for breaking God's will. Samuel was a prophet of God, which means another part of his life was busy telling people the word of the Lord and perhaps particularly telling people how they are not obeying the word of the Lord. Because typically the Lord spoke through a prophet when men were not doing what they were told to do. And so we might liken this to having a police officer show up at your house and knock on your door. And while you can't really think of anything necessarily that you've done wrong, in the back of your mind is, did I do something wrong? Right? You open the door and say, hey, officer, did you come peaceably? Is there something wrong? Is there, is there, is it a problem? Maybe the same with your boss. The boss comes into your office and the boss doesn't normally visit your office and immediately what's going through your mind is, uh oh, did I do something wrong? You might say something to the effect of, boss, have you come peaceably? Or the principal enters your classroom, kids in, in public schools, and the principal doesn't just visit classrooms all the time. And you say, uh-oh, is the principal coming peaceably? That's the idea here. Samuel shows up. It's not normal for Samuel to show up. Samuel, is there something wrong? Or did you come peaceably? And he said in verse 5, peaceably. I'm, yeah, I'm come peaceably. No problem here. You're fine. Collective sigh of relief. Now we can enjoy Samuel's presence. I am come, he says, to sacrifice unto the Lord, sanctify, ceremonially, ceremonially cleanse, set apart, sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and called them unto the sacrifice. So he tells them, clean yourselves up, sanctify yourself uh, as best as could be done with, with the time allotted. That probably would have meant something to the effect of um, washing your clothes, making sure that you're clean, putting away from your, your, yourself any leaven or those sorts of things. And they would ceremonially sanctify themselves to come before the Lord in sacrifice. And it says that he sanctified Jesse. So he made a particular point of making sure that Jesse and his sons were sanctified. And so he, he made that particular point and he specifically said, and your family is invited. He didn't want to leave this to chance here. Literally, come on, uh, this family in particular, be sure that you're there at the sacrifice. So he, he makes sure that Jesse and his sons are going to be there. And the scriptures tell us in verse 6, it came to pass that when they were come, that he looked on Eliab. This would have been Jesse's oldest son, Eliab. And he looked at Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. By implication, Eliab must have been a formidable and a fine-looking man. In many respects, perhaps not unlike the man Saul. He looked the part of a king. Uh, he was uh, strong. He was, he was uh, healthy. Perhaps he had a, a look where he could be a good leader. And Samuel uh, says, surely this must be the one. I mean, obviously, it's one of the sons of Jesse. This must be the one. And God's response to Samuel is well known and will indeed become the focus of our application this morning. He responds this way. He says in verse 7, But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. 
For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh upon the heart. Eliab was a good-looking man, a tall man, a strong man, a very capable-looking man. See, when Saul was chosen, remember, he was chosen by God, but he wasn't chosen by the perfect will of God, was he? He was chosen by the permissive will of God. The choice that God made in choosing the first king, Saul, was an extension of the will of the people, not an extension of the will of God. In other words, the people wanted a king, God did not want a king. But God allowed them to fall into his permissive will and gave them a king, the kind of king they wanted, not the kind of king he wanted. So remember, it wasn't, Saul was not God's choice. Saul was the people's choice that God pinpointed. And they chose Saul based upon his physical demeanor. He was taller, head and shoulders above anyone else. He looked like he could do the part. And so he was chosen out of the nations of Israel to lead. But this time God was choosing the man himself. And he's not going to choose the man that the people want. He's not going to choose a man um, that just looks the part. He's going to choose the man that he wants. And when he's choosing the man that he wants, he doesn't care what he looks like. What he cares about is what his heart looks like. God says, if you want a little bit of insight, Samuel, into how I think, it's not about his physical It's not what he physically looks like. It's how his heart is with me. God's looking at hearts. God is judging hearts to find the man who had the heart of a king, the man who would do it God's way, the man after God's own heart. Well, the scriptures tell us in verses 8 through 10 that Jesse continues to bring his sons before him. Well, it's not Eliab, so let's, let's continue here. So, uh, Jesse then calls Abinadab and makes him pass before Samuel. And he said, nope, not this one. Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Then Jesse made Shammah to pass by. And he said, neither hath the Lord chosen this. And again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord hath not chosen these. So all of Jesse's sons pass by and Samuel's a little confused because he says, God hasn't chosen any of these. And so Samuel says to Jesse in verse 11, Are here all thy children? And Jesse said, he said, There remaineth yet the youngest. And behold, he keepeth the sheep. Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. So there was one son left, but really this son was an afterthought. He was the youngest of the eight boys, so so there's that. Uh, Someone had to watch the sheep while the family was with Samuel. You couldn't just not watch the sheep, uh, not protect the sheep, or else uh, an animal could come in a bear or a lion or or, um, something might come and, and, and kill the sheep. So you had to watch the sheep and the youngest son drew the short straw. Probably didn't even draw straws. They just said, hey, you, go. And so he's there watching the sheep. Estimate that um, this youngest son named David was probably somewhere around 10 to 15 years old at this time. Josephus says he was 10 years old. Josephus, being a Jewish historian that wrote after the time of Christ, said that David was 10 years old. Uh, Other, um, Josephus wasn't always correct. And other historians think he was probably closer to somewhere around 15 years old. But either way, he's out there in the fields. Someone had to miss the blessing of the sacrifice with Samuel. Someone had to watch the sheep. And the youngest was the one that got to do it. 
we might expect that to be the case, the youngest in this room. Uh, my wife would be nodding her head if she was in the room right now. Yeah, yeah, that would have been the youngest. Um, so, this caused Samuel to become very earnest. He tells them, you need to fetch this boy. You need to fetch this lad. And he knows that if this is the last son of Jesse, then this has got to be him. And he says, we will not set down, we will not settle in until he comes. Now, to make a man of God, a prophet of God, remain standing in your house would have been extremely um, bad form. It would have been a very improper. So the fact that Samuel is unwilling to, to sit down, he's unwilling to rest, should give a great deal of urgency to the people. But here's the thing. Uh, David is going to have to be cleansed, right? He's going to have to be sanctified. He's going to have to go through the process of washing and clean clothes and such. So uh, already there's going to be a, a time gap here. And he says, we will not sit down until he comes. So uh, presumably he, he sanctifies himself. Uh, they, they get him ready and they bring him to this sacrifice. And in verse um, 12 and 13, um, I have 13 up on the, the screen. Let's look at verses 12 and 13. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and with all of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So Samuel uh, anoints this young man and the scriptures tell us that he was ruddy and with all of a beautiful countenance. That word ruddy there literally means red. Um, either his countenance was a little bit red um, or his hair was a, a little bit lighter color. And the idea of ruddiness in Jewish culture would have been one of beauty. Um, in the same way that in Asian culture, you know, the, the white skin is beautiful and in our culture, the dark skin is beautiful. Uh, just, you know, from culture to culture, these things change. Well, in Jewish culture, having a little bit lighter hair, you might say um, a lighter brown or, or even kind of that reddish tinge to your hair would have been a very beautiful thing for a culture that is um, very much so dark-haired people. And so he was ruddy, the scriptures tell us, and of a beautiful countenance. It wasn't necessarily that he looked the part of Eliab or Saul, that he was the man's man, that he was um, the, the one that looked like a warrior king, but, but what he did have is a beautiful countenance. And perhaps you've met people like that before, where as you look into their face, um, it's not necessarily that they're the, the most handsome man or the most pretty girl, but they might very well still be the most beautiful person in the room because their eyes are bright and they, they just have an absolutely beautiful countenance. The idea that the whole face is bright and is beautiful, even if, even if it's not necessarily a reflection of the, the most stunningly attractive person in the room from a physical standpoint. And so he was one that had this beautiful countenance. He was a, a goodly man to look upon, or a young man, and God says, arise, this is the one, anoint him. So Samuel takes the anointing oil, he anoints David, and the scriptures tell us that the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. The Spirit of the Lord, this is being the same Spirit of the Lord that came upon Saul when Saul was anointed. Saul was anointed to be king and then as he went back home, the scriptures tell us the Spirit of the Lord fell upon him and he began to prophesy. In this case, we see the Spirit of the Lord now come upon David. This is not salvation, remember. 
This has nothing to do with him going to heaven or not going to heaven. This is the Spirit of the Lord filling him for ministry, empowering him to do what God has called him to do, which is to become the next king in Israel. Now, this is as far as we're going to exposit the passage today. We're going to pick up next week with the ramifications of this action upon Saul, and we're going to see Saul and David interact with each other for the first time. But there's plenty to talk about still because we have to apply. And as we apply, we're going to apply what we learned back in verse 7, where God said, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And as we consider this verse this morning, we're going to make six applications. Two of them are going to be uh, somewhat negative, warning applications. The final four are going to be, I trust, very encouraging to you or at least some of you in this room. And so let's look at these together. Point number one, rebellious servant, remember God sees your heart. As we think about this warning against rebellion that we've seen in the past many chapters of Scripture, we'll consider it in in two direct contexts, this idea of rebellion and then the idea of hypocrisy. The rebellious man is the man who knows what God wants, but believes that what you want is more important than what God wants. Saul was a rebellious servant. He was a man who chose his own way above God's way. He obeyed when it was convenient. He obeyed when it worked out for him. But he felt little concern obeying under any circumstances when when it didn't prove to be in his best interest according to his thought processes. He was willing to disobey the clear commands of God. The rebellious servant is the servant who knows what God's word says, knows what God's word asks of him, but still picks and chooses obedience based upon what he wants to do or what works best for him. The rebellious servant might be very loyal to certain areas of God's word while completely apathetic to others. But the rebellious servant is often convinced that whatever show of loyalty they have to the word of God, whatever areas of their life they are being obedient that this should be sufficient for God. It should be enough for God. That as long as I am better than most, I'm doing okay with God. The rebellious servant forgets that admonition that God gave to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 5. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. The rebellious servant ignores the fact that God doesn't just want you to sit on the fence of his will, that God doesn't just want part of you. God wants all of you. This passage is reiterated in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke. It's called the greatest commandment, that if one loves God with every fiber of his being, then every fiber of his being will be bent toward the one whom he loves in obedience. The rebellious servant is is not this kind of a man. The rebellious servant finds room for his plans in the midst of God's. The rebellious servant will follow God until following God gets in the way of his own plans or of his own desires. And then he's not afraid to tell the world and to make it very plain that he thinks that his plan is better than God's plan at that point. That he's going to go his way rather than God's way. 
Like the man Saul, who disobeyed the word of God when he sacrificed without Samuel, knowing that Samuel was supposed to be there, because that's what he felt needed to happen before the battle began. Like the man Saul, who disobeyed the word of God in that he didn't kill King Agag, even though God said destroy all the Amalekites, because though God had commanded it, it just didn't fit into his plan and his desire and what to do. The rebellious man lives, if we could call it this, in a good enough world where his actions, he feels, are good enough to get by. And this is a war- one of the warnings that we can glean from 1 Samuel 16.7. See, because God doesn't just look at our outward appearance. God sees our heart. For all the times the rebellious servant spends convincing himself that his actions won't put him into the spiritual doghouse of his church or of his pastor or of his family or wherever it might be, he forgets that God sees his heart. That God knows his intents and his desires and his purposes. Now, if you're a servant of the living God, then every sin, and we know this, every sin, past, present, and future, is under the blood of Christ. You will not stand before God and one day be found guilty of your sin and cast into the lake of fire. But, as we think about that, as we think about the reality that when God looks at us, he sees us clothed in the blood of Jesus Christ, should not this make it all the more important that we live as God would have us to live? Isn't that what Romans 6, 1 and 2 says? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? It doesn't say if we continue in sin that we'll be cast into hell. It says if we continue in sin, all we're doing is allowing grace to abound. If you've accepted salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you're on your way to heaven. But that doesn't mean you should take advantage of the grace that God has bestowed upon you. God forbid, he says, how should we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? He said a similar thing in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, if you are indeed risen with him into the heavenlies, if you will one day sit with him in the heavens, seek those things that, which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ. On high, And this is one of the warnings that we can glean from 1 Samuel 16, that, that if we are living in a manner of rebellion against God, remember, God sees your heart. Number two, and this is the final warning, and then I'm going to get to encouragement. Number two, hypocritical servant. God sees your heart. We talked about hypocrisy right at the beginning. The hypocritical servant is one who looks great on the outside. He has all the right words. He has all the right looks. He doesn't rebel against anything that is taught or is preached or that is expected. He is down the line, point for point, what anyone would expect a Christian to be. This is not the man that hits a point where he says, well, that's enough for me. I've had enough of God. The rest is my way. He's the man that will do everything point for point what God wants. But the thing with the hypocrite is that for all of his good actions... His heart has, at very best, the completely wrong motives. He'll go to church, but he won't go to church specifically to learn of God and to edify the believers. He'll go to church so that others will think he's a godly guy. So that others will look at him and think he's something. To build up his own pride and his own image. The hypocrite will give money, but not out of a heart of joyful and humble, loving obedience to the word of God. He will do it so that others will be impressed so that others will feel um, that they owe him a favor. He will give money for himself, for his own reasons. The hypocrite will pray, but he won't pray in a humble petition to God for his needs and the needs of others. 
He will do so so that others will hear him and think that he's something special before God. He will do so so that he will look good. The hypocrite is right in actions, but his motives are anything but God-honoring. Proverbs 15.33 tells us the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom and before honor is humility. The testimony of all scripture is that God resists the proud and God exalts the humble. We read it in 1 Samuel 13. We read it in 1 Samuel 15. God doesn't want your actions unless it's motivated by your heart. God doesn't want you to act humble unless the external humility is an extension of your humble heart. God doesn't want you to act pious unless your external piety is a humble extension of an inward piety, an inward reverence for the true and living God. Two times in the New Testament, Jesus quoted Isaiah 29.13, which tells us this, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near to me, near me with their mouth, and with their lips they do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. He says that the Jews were a people who in lip, in word, and in deed were all for God, but their hearts were far from him. And the warning of 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, is that God sees your heart. When you act godly just to impress your pastor, you might impress your pastor, but God knows. God knows your heart. When you act pious so that you can look at others around you and judge yourself against them and say, wow, I must be doing pretty good because look at what I do and look what they don't do. God knows. When God looks down upon this kind of living, Let's just say that that's not what God wants for us. God wants something so much better for you than just learning how to conform or learning how to blend in or learning how to look good. God offers something so much better to each of us than just public praise or personal pride or self-righteous judgment. The man who will truly humble himself before the hand of God for that man, God offers spiritual exaltation that cannot be fathomed. And when we play the hypocrite, what we are doing is we are yielding spiritual and eternal blessings for temporal, personal gain. And it's just not worth it. And you can't have it both ways. You can't receive the, the temporal, personal gain and the spiritual, eternal blessing because God sees our hearts. This is the example of our Lord and this is what pleases God. Okay, now let me encourage you this morning. Point number three. Forgotten servant. Remember God sees your heart. The forgotten servant is the servant who is busy behind the scenes working for the Lord completely outside of the spotlight. The forgotten servant is the servant who loves God and is quietly faithful. The forgotten servant doesn't get recognized for his efforts no one really notices him. The forgotten servant may be the man who stays after everyone is gone and cleans the church. He may be the man whose best work is done at four in the morning when he gets up early and gets on his knees and begins praying for his pastor and for his church and for the people in his church. The forgotten servant seeks no recognition but also receives no recognition. And it's not always easy, is it? We humans are a funny lot in that we tend to have in us some need to be encouraged in our tasks through tangible means. It's not always something that we have to have, but it's always something that's really nice to have. 
Maybe just a pat on the back, a well done, a thank you something so that you know that somebody cares. And I almost feel strange today actually addressing myself to the forgotten servants in the room because everything that I'm about to say is likely what the, what the forgotten servant pillows their head every night reminding themselves and wakes up every morning and determines to do. But I pray that in some small way, a verbal acknowledgement of God's teaching as it relates to that forgotten servant will somehow be an encouragement to you. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, and then verses 3 and 4. He said, Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them, otherwise ye have no reward of your Father, which is in heaven. But when, ye, when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. He would say again in verses 5 and 6 of Matthew 6, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward, but thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. And he says again in verses 16 and 18 of the same chapter, Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward, but thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Jesus is, in a manner of speaking, teaching us to be forgotten servants, the kind of servants that do what we do, whether anyone is looking or not, and even more so, do what we do because no one is looking, because we know that God sees, and God's pleasure is when we do things with a right heart for his reason. That's one of the reasons why we put our giving box in the back here. Giving is a very personal, giving of your alms, we read. It's a very personal form of worship. It's not to be trumpeted. It's not to be seen before men. And so our giving box rests in the back where you can put it in without anybody particularly seeing you so that it can be motivated by the Lord himself and not by any other motive. And forgotten servant, never forget that what is forgotten among men is never forgotten before God because God doesn't see as men see. Men see the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. Point number four, misunderstood servant. God sees your heart as well. You know, there are those among us who are misunderstood servants of God. You're living in right conscience before God, and there are those around you who simply cannot understand. Or maybe they won't take the time to understand the choices that you have made. They look at you and they disagree with you and they believe that you are not walking with the Lord and they would disagree with your lifestyle and they would, they would perhaps question you, maybe even rebuke you for your choices. And yet as you stand before God, you know that you are right with Him. Maybe it's an action. Maybe it's an inaction. Maybe it's a particular priority in your life. And you live every day as a misunderstood servant of God. And to the misunderstood among us, we are reminded that one day we will stand before a judge, but that judge will not be another man. That judge will not be a system. That judge will not be a church. That judge will be the true and living God. And if, we've, if we are pleasing God, 
then we're doing what we need to do. In Romans chapter 12, excuse me, chapter 14, verses 2 through 5, Paul says this in the context of the weaker brethren and, and, and us having each of our own standards. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, nor let him that, and let him, let not him which eateth judge not, excuse me, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, uh, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. In the first half of that passage there, Paul says, who judges another man's servant? See, men are judged by their own masters. A servant is not answerable to the other servants for his actions. He's answerable to his master. A servant is not answerable to bystanders for his actions. He's answerable to his master. And if he is doing what is right in the eyes of his master, then that's all that matters because he is the servant of his master. Misunderstood servant. I'm not trying to give a, a pass to a person who's doing wrong here. That's, that's obviously not what I'm talking about in this context. If you are truly misunderstood, if you are truly serving the Lord, you're right before God, you have a master, and that master is God, and you owe no one else an explanation but God. Make sure that you are fully persuaded in your own mind that you are right biblically. If you've searched the Scriptures, if you're fully persuaded, if you know that what you are doing is right and you are being misunderstood, know this, that man looks on the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. And that can be a great encouragement to you. Number five, as we hasten on, rejected servant. God sees your heart as well. Beyond just being misunderstood, there are those of us who have been rejected for our servant to God. Maybe it's rejected by your family. Maybe it's rejected by society or culture or your government. We are heading rapidly toward the time where, where churches of like faith and practice, where, where churches who hold to the word of God will be rejected not just ignored or marginalized, but rejected by society. Already as a non-age segregated church, we are rejected by a portion of, of people of, of even like faith because of our not like practice. There's some who deal with this as we'll be dealing with it all as Christians more and more. There's some that deal with this today and every day though. You have lost loved ones because of your faith. You have lost a job because of your faith. You have lost opportunities because of your faith. And Jesus told us that, would, that rejection would happen. He told us in Matthew 10, verses 34 through 39, Think that, not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace but a sword, for I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. And then Jesus said, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. 
You know, rejection is indeed a part of being a servant of God. We don't go looking for it. We don't ask for it. We don't do things that are particularly heinous in order that we can receive it. But when it happens, we remind ourselves that as the world looks on us, and maybe even others in the church look on us and reject us, others of our family, maybe even believers in our family who reject us, God looks on the outward appearance. But you know, man may see it that way, but God sees your heart. Finally, sixth and finally, flawed servant, God sees your heart. If you had fit into no other category today, then you definitely fit into this one because everyone fits into this one. We're all flawed, are we not? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are all flawed. None of us is perfect. We are all flawed. We strive to serve and please God, but we strive in bodies that love sin. Our heart is sold out to serve God, but our flesh resists us every day in so many ways. When we wander, God must chasten us back. When we get confused, God opens our eyes. We become selfish, God must humble us. But through it all, if you truly love God with all your heart, even in spite of your flaws, 1 Samuel 16 reminds us that God sees your heart. Now again, this is in no way telling you in no way trying to give you any sort of a pass for known purposeful sin. If you're, if you're in that category where you're just sinning and saying, well, God sees my heart, you're the rebellious servant. You're not the flawed servant. The flawed servant is not the servant that is excusing his sin because he's flawed or because God sees his heart. That is the rebellious servant. The flawed servant is the one who is sincerely, passionately, loving God and serving God and wanting to do right, but still living in this mortal body as Paul describes it in in Romans chapter 7. And he cries out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Remember, flawed servant, you are flawed, but God knows that you love Him. And God knows your heart. And as we serve Him, And as we seek Him first, and as we are faithful to confess and forsake our sin when we sin, the Scriptures tell us that God will see our heart. I don't know which of these points you find yourself in this morning other than point number six. But as we close, the overarching reality becomes clear. There is no fooling God. There's no fooling God one way or the other. God sees your heart, which means He knows the very essence of who you are in every respect. To the disobedient in heart, regardless of your actions, this should bring you to fear and repentance. To the genuine and obedient and sincere in heart, this should bring you to encouragement and peace. And that's my prayer for us this morning and that that through this week, that as we serve God and as we perhaps search our own hearts and where we fall in these categories, maybe even some others I didn't mention this morning. Remember that God sees you, not just your actions, not just what others think of you. God sees you for who you are. He knows you for who you are. He knows how you love Him. He knows how you serve Him. He knows your heart of devotion to Him or lack thereof. And may that encourage us to become a better, more faithful servant of the living God. Let's close in prayer.